I don't know, would you speak in a church where the pastor insults you? <clears throat> I am so glad to be here. And, and I don't know that Darren thought about it. I know I didn't when we set up this date that, uh, I would <clears throat> that I'd be able to be here on Father's Day with a family. Thank you for that. I, that. That means a great deal. You know that we're not biological father and son. He looks just a little different from me. His, his real parents overfed him. <laughs> uh, could I ask you guys at the back, would you mind dimming, or maybe you can't, can you dim the spots a little bit? Uh, the reason for that is that I'm using an iPad, and uh, if the light is too bright, I can't see the words. Ah, perfect. Can you still see me? All right. Thank you very Oh, there's another thing. I think I preached too long last hour because there's a, there's a timer back there to tell the speaker when to shut up. Well, out of, out of kindness to me, they didn't turn it on last hour. And I talked and I talked and it was just wonderful. But now they've got the timer working, so I've got to get on with things. I've been thinking, it is Father's Day, and I've been thinking about, about my father a, a little bit. And uh, all my memories of my father are, are, are very good. He's been gone a long time now. But I, I, I remember so many things that he taught me. And I learned to, to believe what he taught me. One of the things he taught me was that if, it, if it's worth starting, it's worth finishing. I don't know why he ever felt he needed to tell me that. Another one, close the door. Were you born in a barn? <laughs> or you know, you know the other one, do you think you can heat up the whole outdoors? Or, or one of his favorites was kind of silent. If I was in a group and I was misbehaving, it was not unusual for my dad to come into the room, not say a word, just walk up to me and thump me on the side of the head. <laughs> I got the point. Or... After he had told me something, he would finish. He, he was not bilingual, but he picked up one word from Spanish, which he garbled, and uh, he would tell me what he t- had to tell me, and then he would say, savvy. And I understood that what that meant was if I understood what he said, I would do it. And I did it. One that I resented when I was young. I feel, if I hurt myself, fell down, he would say, come over here and I'll pick you up. <laughs> well, I ruined the whole thing. By the time I got to him, I didn't need anything else. How often I've thought of him over these years. As I said, he's been gone a long time, but I can still hear his voice, see his example, feel his presence. Now, of course, he speaks so softly. I have to be very quiet to hear him slow down enough to remember his words. Now when I think of God, he's God the Father to me. Now I know the arguments. God is infinite, we're finite. We really shouldn't attribute to God either maleness or femaleness. I know that. It's our language that is inadequate, not our God. But I like the biblical language, and so I think of him as God the Father. Not everybody likes that. I know that this is very difficult for some people who have not had a good earthly father. It's easier for me than it is for them because my father was so good. And with the years, I've come to see him more clearly 
and to appreciate him more dearly. If you've not had that kind of father, I know that you have to think about this language before using it. But with my father, I learned over the years, I learned to trust him. I suppose he wasn't always right, but he was always loving. And so I learned to trust him. I read one time about a father who didn't believe you ought to trust anybody in this world and in fact tried to teach his children that. The instance I, I read about was when his son was quite young. I think he was still maybe preschool. His father encouraged him to jump from the staircase and he would catch him. And the boy jumped and his father stepped aside. So the boy hit the floor, hurt himself. And then the father said, see, I told you, never trust anyone. Well, that example is an example of exactly who our God, the Father, is not. And if there's one thing that we Christians hold very dear, it is that we can trust God. And, and if we can trust God and trust those who are in God, we, we go through life with a little bit more trust. So on this Father's Day, I'm thinking of my dad. I, I've, I'm thinking of gratitude of this family I get to be a part of, and they are part of my family on this Father's Day. And I want to talk about our relationship with God the Father, the one, the one that Jesus taught us to call Father, and who himself called God Abba, meaning really Daddy, indicating the intimacy that we can have with God. Now, the scriptures do talk about two different kinds of fathers, and that we need to understand. One I've just described, the one that Jesus called Abba. But there's another one. The one that Jesus described as a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of patience, a God of forgiveness, a God of, of kindness, a God of salvation. But there's another Bible father, and that one is one who is called the father of lies. We call him the devil. Or Satan. It's really interesting what the Bible says about him. Jesus, this is in John 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, and he's talking to his critics, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth. For there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Have you ever known anybody, by the way, for whom that is the native language? I have. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth... Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, here's what God says, the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Dr. Scott Peck, a number of years ago, wrote a, a book, a, it was a bestseller, called The Road Less Traveled. He was a psychologist, psychiatrist. And he, he wrote another book that impacted me even more. And he, he called it The People of the Lie. He says there's a psychological, psychiatric category that we no longer use anymore, and it's called evil. And he said there are some people who are, in fact, evil. 
I'd come to that conclusion on my own over the years of dealing with people. And he said, what makes them evil, simple, what makes them evil is they lie. They lie when they don't have to. They lie when it makes no sense to. They lie because it has become habitual to them. They lie because they don't even always know the difference between the truth and a lie. And what they, the the evil that they do through lying is phenomenal. Well, as I said, I've known some people like that. And I think of them when I read Jesus' words in this passage. It's as if we're dealing with a kind of spiritual genetic. We can trace lying, interestingly enough, down through families, generation after generation. Just as we can trace goodness down through families, generation after generation. It really does matter, do you understand? It really does matter who your father is. And we are so blessed because we're, ours is the God of Jesus and not the father of lies. Now, we, we don't have any choice who our physical fathers are, of course, but we can choose our spiritual one. And it is that father that we honor today. In a, in a culture like ours, we're so filled with, with noises, so filled with so many voices, it's fair to ask, how, how do we know? How do we know that what we're hearing is the voice of the Lord? How, how do we discern truth from lies? If there's anything our current political season is teaching us, it is how difficult it is to know who is telling the truth, particularly when you have candidates yelling at each other and, and saying about each other, that's a lie, that's a lie, he lies, she lies. How do you know who speaks the truth? There's a helpful story in the Old Testament that I want to take you to. Uh, <clears throat> Darren, one of, the neat, one of the neat things about having a surrogate son is he has to do what you ask him. Would you bring me my water bottle, please? See how obedient. This is a good lesson. Oh, you rat. (laughs) And that's the real, Darren. (laughs) What if I, if I'd have dropped that, I'd have been humiliated and you'd have been embarrassed. And I know you don't mean to embarrass me in front of all these people. Not at all. In no way. So let me take you to the Old Testament. This, this story is found in, in uh, 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. In chapter 18, the prophet Elijah is, uh, is in a contest with the prophets of Baal, the false god. Hundreds of them, just one Elijah. And in the contest, he is victorious. He defeats them, humiliates them because they have no power. He has the power of God working within him. And it was a great moment for Elijah. But only a few verses later, we find him running for his life. You see, he had taken on the palace's prophets. He had taken on the official religion. And defeated them so soundly that he, in effect, humiliated the king and the queen. And they're out to get him. In fact, the queen, we still use the, the word, the name of that queen, Jezebel. She's a Jezebel is about as insulting a thing as we can say about somebody. She was a, a mad woman when her prophets were defeated. So she's out to get him. She says in verse 2 of the 19th chapter, So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me. 
be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Meaning, dead. So he runs. He does what any normal person would do. He's just boldly stood before all of these hundreds of prophets. He's challenged them in the name of God. He has defeated them. He has, in effect, brought shame on the king and the queen. So he does what what any normal person would do when a furious queen shakes her fist. He runs. And in this passage that we're looking at, we find Elijah cowering in the desert, scared, despondent, confused, full of doubt and fear. Doubt about God, probably. Doubt about himself, undoubtedly. Afraid for his life. While King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are searching for him so they can kill him, he's searching for God. He wants reassurance. He needs to know that God is still with him. I don't know how it's been in your life. I can tell you about mine that some of my highest peaks have been followed by my lowest valleys. When it just seems that all the strength has gone out of me and there's nothing left. Well, let me read you this passage. We, we read in verse 9, The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Now, <laughs> that's a real mixture of emotions in that statement. Uh, there's some self-pity in it. I'm all alone here. I've been the only one that's going to come. But there's truth in it, because he has been zealous for the Lord. He's been brave. He's been unwavering in his, in his faith when he was facing all of the enemies. He was an exemplary person. And now he's running scared. The Israelites, he says, have rejected your covenant. The Israelites were his own people. They've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. It's a real battle. These are real enemies he's talking about. Everything that he holds sacred has been desecrated. Uh, again, and you can get a sense of the tension if you think about this political campaign where we're hearing from the candidates... America is going to the dogs. Everything is wrong. I'm the only one who can save us. There's a lot of pride in that. A lot of self-righteousness in it. But there's also, at least here in Elijah's case, there's real valor. He has, in fact, been fighting for the Lord, and he feels that, that nobody appreciates it. So you hear fear in his voice, and and paranoia in his voice. They're out to get me, Lord. Well, the truth is, they were out to get him. Some of our crises in life are imaginary. Some of our crises are for real. And that was true in this case. They were out to get him. So he was feeling lonely. He was feeling like he was the only one left. And he can't stand being alone. There's one, there's one safe, if misunderstood, place to stand when you're feeling like that. And Elijah is now directed to that place. The Lord said, Go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. 
That's the place. Not the mountain, but the presence of the Lord. Go out and stand in the presence of the Lord. For the moment, Elijah, don't do anything. Don't try to fix anything. Don't try to be anything. Except present in the presence of the Lord. There are, there are times when the proper advice is don't just do something. Stand there. Not easy. Not easy when you're, where you're feeling despondent or, or proud or, or afraid or, or lonely or misunderstood. You, you, you feel it's all up to you. You've got to fix things. That's us fathers. We, we fix things. All except some of us. I have the reputation in my family, and it sounds to me, from what I've heard of, of, of Darren's stories this week, that he's, he may be my biological son. Because <laughs> he's messed up all kinds. That's another story. But I, don't, I can't fix things. I'm, I'm, I'm the world's leading non-mechanic. And uh, when it comes to electronics, uh, I have trouble pushing the on button. Uh, some time ago, uh, another one of my Velcro sons is really competent with computers, and I was having a little bit of a problem with my computer, and so I texted him and, uh, and told him what my problem was and asked for his help. Well, he wasn't immediately available, and so I kept tinkering, and I got it fixed. I fixed it, and I texted him, and I told him what I had done, and he wrote me back. Who are you, and what have you done with my father? <clears throat> We're supposed to be able to fix things. Well, here, and by the way, that's one of the reasons probably that some of us men are not very good at prayer. It's just kind of built into us, I think, biologically, and it's built into us culturally that we are to fix things. To stand in the presence of God and pray and wait and depend, that's not in our nature. But what Elijah is being told here, this mighty prophet is being told here, don't try to fix it. Just stand there for a while. Just stand. Be present to me. Let me do the fixing. Then, verse 11, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Another translation calls it a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood in the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Isn't that an interesting question from God? God knew what he was doing there. Elijah knew what he was doing there. What are you doing here, he asks. As if to say, you don't really belong here, do you, Elijah? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten who I am? You're, you're, you're my chosen prophet, Elijah. I've been with you through thick and thin. Everything that you have been able to accomplish, you did because I was with you. Have you forgotten who I am, Elijah? Have you forgotten who you are, Elijah? I gave you the powers that you have been using as my servant. So why are you out here in the wilderness feeling sorry for yourself, giving 
giving in to your doubts and fears. But notice, Elijah couldn't even heard this at first because he was focusing on the spectacular. First, there was the wind. Uh, we, my wife and I experienced something of that wind. We've just made a cross-country trip from Tennessee to Oregon. Uh, here in the Midwest, we experienced some torrential rains driven by the strongest wind. So strong, in fact, that I had a couple of times had to pull under the overpass and, and wait for it to calm down a little bit. And, just, and before that, just a couple of weeks before that, I had driven from Tennessee up to Indianapolis and, uh, and stopped to get gas. And the, the sky was looking really, really dark. But it hadn't started to rain yet. But while I was pumping gas, for the first time in my life, and some of you are more accustomed to this than I'm not, I had never before heard a tornado warning alarm go off. It's downright scary. Especially while you're pumping gas. Well, we can focus on those scary moments, on the power of the wind, and think, God's speaking. In fact, some insurance policies, I think, still use the language of earth and fire, and, I mean, earthquake and fire and wind and flood, acts of God, they're called. As if, as if God only speaks through the spectacular, the scary. But he doesn't speak here in the wind. And that was followed by the earthquake, and he wasn't speaking in the earthquake. And that was followed by the fire, and he wasn't speaking in the fire. It's like those pieces of advice that my, my dad gave me, and those admonitions that stick with me to this day. I don't tend to think about them when I'm focusing on the spectacular. I think about them when in quietness the voice comes to me with those admonitions. And it's in the quietness that God comes to us with that still, small voice. And, and, and when, you, when you're faced with things that you, can't, you just can't fix, it's a good thing to remember that there are some things in life you can't fix. And calm down and try to get into the presence of the one who does fix things. Because all of us will, at some time or another in life, even us fathers, will be up against what's not fixable. Darren asked me to, to tell you about one of those moments in my life. And... And I'll try to do that. It, the story starts on Memorial Day weekend, 1994. I wasn't at our house. I was, in those days, my wife was uh, struggling with some health issues. And so our home was up in the mountains of Arizona, about an hour and a half from our church down in Mesa, Arizona. And, uh, and I commuted. And we had a little apartment down in Mesa, um, which I would uh, use from time to time as I was getting ready for the weekend. And so I was there when the police at 4 o'clock in the morning knocked on the door of our home in Payson. And Joy answered it. 
And the man said, I'm so sorry to tell you. And what he told her was that our son, almost 27 years of age, had committed suicide. She called some neighbors, not next door neighbors, but dear, dear friends in the neighborhood, and they came and, and picked her up and drove her the hour and a half down to Mesa and arrived as I was getting ready for work. And she told me. There's some things a father can't fix. And that was one of them. Our son had been, had been struggling for, well, most of his life, really, <clears throat> from a condition that the doctors called neurochemical depression. Uh, like his mother, he was allergic to petrochemicals. And uh, they affected him neurologically. <clears throat> and, uh, and he got so discouraged in his battle with uh, depression that he moved from Arizona up to the Oregon coast where his <clears throat> grand grandparents had a little cabin. <clears throat> For a while it was okay, but then he, he felt himself getting weaker and felt the depression taking greater hold on him. We also think now that he probably was bitten by a tick and had Lyme disease and everything just ganged up on him. And, and so he took a hose and drove his vehicle up into a mountain spot that was a favorite of his and attached the hose to the exhaust pipe and gave in to the depression. So, <clears throat> so what do you do when your world collapses? When more than anything else you want a miracle. You want what just happened never to have happened. You want to turn time backwards and wipe out what's, what's taken place. You, you feel like a great wind has hit you, and you're blown about. And God is not in the wind. And like the earth beneath you has shaken so violently that it has opened up and tries to swallow you, but God is not in the earthquake. And then the fire. The fire feels like a, a fever that won't go away. Like a burning that ravages everything. <clears throat> and God is not in the fire. But then in the quietness that follows, your anguished crying and your questioning comes a still, small voice. Now you have felt like yelling at God, demanding to know why he hasn't been with you, why this thing has happened. But then, in that quietness, you realize it wasn't his fault. And he wasn't the author of the tragedy. In our case, our son made a really bad decision. And overruled, I'm persuaded. 
the will of God. Well, it cost him his life. It felt for a while like it was going to cost us ours. But it didn't. And I'm telling you this story now 22 years later. It's the worst story I could tell you. I'm a minister, you know. These things are not supposed to happen to good people, to people serving the Lord. But they do happen. No one is exempt from heartache, from tragedy, from suffering. And if it hasn't hit you yet, it probably will. What do you do when it hits? And you can't fix it. Well, you go into the presence of God. That's what you do. And you hear your heavenly father say, as my earthly father said, come over here and I'll help you up. And he helps you up. And you go on from there. Remember the words from Isaiah. Do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flames will not set you ablaze. Come over here. And I'll pick you up.